Hello, and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. I've got the scripture reading for today. My name is Ty. And our scripture reading comes from Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he, he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks, Ty. Uh, Ty typed that up on his typewriter, and I feel like we should auction off that beautiful thing (laughs) this morning. Um, Let's pray. Jesus, thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you for this place and these people. I, like always, am overwhelmed with gratitude to get to be here with them. Um, I pray that over the next few minutes that you would, um, I don't know, that we would feel the nearness of your presence, that you would um, open up our imagination, that you would widen our view, Um, and I pray that you would begin over the next few weeks to disciple in us um, what felt most important to you. So I just pray that we would... um, Look to Jesus uh, for the good way. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, So this is the first Sunday of Lent, and we're starting a new series of talks here at Springbrook on um, what's often called Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And the Sermon on the Mount is uh, that we will be studying over the next few weeks is in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and seven. And so if you read it all at one time, it reads kind of like one very, very long sermon, um, which is maybe what it was. There are some scholars who believe it's like Matthew just made like a comp- compilation of Jesus' greatest hits and turned them into one like series of great hits, which is fine with me too. Uh, either way, you see it, I think it's a really, it's just this phenomenal uh, thing. I don't, I've, I've never uh, in my life found anything quite like the sermon on the Mount. Um, 
A favorite theologian of mine, Campbell Morgan, he calls the Sermon on the Mount the Magna Carta of the Kingdom of God. It's what is the Kingdom of God? Who is the Kingdom of God? What do we need to know about the Kingdom of God? Here's the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it is. Um, And people all throughout history have been wowed by it. Thomas Jefferson called it uh, the most sublime and benevolent code of morals to have ever been offered. Um, you could argue that he did or did not follow it, but he, <laughs> he did really like it. Um, Gandhi, Gandhi, uh, when he talks, when he reads the Sermon on the Mount, he says, these are my scriptures. This is what it means to be human. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. says uh, he cites the Sermon on the Mount as what began the riots and uh, or the, um, the protests in Montgomery. Uh, the writer, Kurt Vonnegut, said, calls the, the Sermon on the Mount the thing that made him want to be human. Uh, if you're a Vonnegut fan, he is, it's actually a very um, interesting quote. He says, I could have been a rattlesnake, but then I read the Sermon on the Mount and I wanted to be a human. If you could sum it up, the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters of Jesus answering this question, what is the good life? Uh, Which at the risk of being uh, reductive is, I think, the question that all of us are asking in the room. What is the good life? And so I'm very excited to spend the season of Lent um, in this particular text with all of you. Um, and I would encourage you to read along and follow along with us, to, to meditate along with us on these verses. We're going to put a reading plan on social media, but it's essentially this. There's three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so each week we're going to just be in one chapter. So this week five, the next week six. Uh, and so there's six weeks. So essentially it'll let us get through the Sermon on the Mount twice in six weeks. So you can take the whole week to read through a chapter. You can read through, um, if you're you know, a super student, and many of you are, uh, you could read the same chapter every day for a week. Whatever you decide to do, I think it'll bless you. Um, but I would love for you to follow uh, along with us. So um, Anyway, we're going to start. We won't have time to cover every part of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm hoping to do that over, like, my tenure as a pastor, like, before I retire. That's my goal. Um, But we will um, cover some. So um, this week we're going to start where Matthew started, which is in the Beatitudes. But first I want to tell you a little story. Um, uh, Chad told you last week, and if you know me, you know uh, that I love art, uh, like through and through. I love it. My favorite place on the planet is the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I've said this here, but I tell Daniel often that when you think I'm about to die, just roll me into the Met and light me up a cigarette and let me be. (laughs) So um, I I love it. Um, My art is not confined to one thing. I like all different kinds uh, of art, but one um, artist that I'm very curious about, I've talked about him before here, is a is an American artist. His name's Jasper Johns. Um, and he's so curious to me because he pretty much only paints or creates American flags. And he does so many different things. Like there, he has dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of works and almost all of them are American flags. Um, here's one. Uh, Sawyer, will you throw it up on the screen? Um, if you've been coming here for a long time, you've actually heard me talk not only about him, but about this exact uh, piece of art. Can everyone see it? The title of it is White Flag, which is creative. You know, he's an artist. Um, <laughs> so uh, here's why I love it. I love this painting um, because it's just one color, and yet somehow with only one color and some shadows, uh, an entire flag appears. And so years ago, I was visiting the Met, and not to die, just to visit, and um, I turned a corner. I'm like walking around. I turned a corner, and I legitimately almost ran smack into uh, this flag. And I, I have loved this painting for years, but honestly, I almost missed it because I barely recognized uh, what it was because I'd only before ever seen this uh, flag in books. 
Uh, and in books, what uh, was left out of the, I don't know, the experience of it was that it's absolutely enormous, like almost this size. It is like six feet by 10 feet. It's, it's enormous, but it's not only huge, it's also beautiful. Like really, really, like, like take your way, your breath away, beautiful. Um, it's like this flag, it's just a white flag, right? But it is so much more than that because on it is not just paint. Um, it's also like torn up sections of newspaper and ads and, and all kinds of things. And, and Jasper Johns, he took these newspapers and these ads, this like printed material, and he dipped them into beeswax in order to give them structure. And then he macheted them onto a canvas and then he painted uh, white all over the top of them. And at the risk of sounding really hyperbolic, this painting it it tells the story of our country in like this really unique and really, really moving way. And so I've chased this painting all over museums in New York City, uh, legitimately. Uh, and any time I found it, I'm surprised all over again because it is so big. And it's so beautiful, more than I ever uh, really knew. Because I only knew it in the pages of a book. But in real life, it is so much bigger and so much wider, and so much more alive. It had so much more to offer me, but it, it took for me this new way of seeing it to experience it for all that it had uh, to offer, for all that it was worth. I would argue uh, that Jesus is doing a really similar thing in the Sermon on the Mount, but particularly in the Beatitudes. I think he's offering us a lens by which we can see the kingdom of God breaking through into the world, uh, but it's a lens that we wouldn't necessarily expect. Because how many of you know that when people talk about kingdoms and rules and reigns, people aren't normally looking for things like meekness and mourning and mercy and peace, where the first thing is actually the last thing, and the last thing is the first thing. Uh, there's a preacher I love that I quote a ton around here, Barbara Brown Taylor, and she talks about how when she was a kid, she loved to hang upside down. Uh, and I love this, I related to it. She said, I knew what the world looked like this way. So I would hang upside down so I could see the world in a whole new way of seeing it. She says this, she says, I think Jesus should have asked the crowd to stand on their heads while he taught them the Beatitudes. Because that's what he's doing. He's turning the known world completely upside down. It's like the Jesus principle of inversion. Uh, a kingdom upside down. And so I think standing on our heads to listen, um, to, to hear this, to hear the Beatitudes is not such a bad idea because uh, just like the original hearers of this message, we have been discipled in life to see the world in like these, these, this one particular way where power looks like strength and where success is like always upward and where fulfillment comes from being known and followed and admired and, and, and filled. And so when Jesus breaks in with this list, he's kind of saying, do you want to know who's on top in my kingdom? Stand on your head and I'll show you. Stand on your heads because I want to offer you a new way of seeing the world where what is most valued won't make a lot of practical sense. Where what is most valued will confuse you and maybe even offend you. I want to show you a world full of things where almost uh, full of things that probably no one applauds for or celebrates. A kingdom that welcomes the poor in spirit. A kingdom that praises comfort to those who mourn. A kingdom that esteems the weak and fills hunger with justice and extends mercy everywhere and gives vision to purity of heart and, and ownership and lineage to those who make peace. And a kingdom that raises up the persecuted and pours blessing onto people who are mocked. 
the Beatitudes, uh, when they're read rightly, I think are really shocking. Uh, Brian Zahn says that the only reason that the Beatitudes wouldn't shock us is because we've made them patronizingly sentimental. He says this, he says, the best way to ignore what Jesus says is to turn his words into sentiment to turn his words into something nostalgic, to turn his words into a coffee mug. No offense if you have the Beatitudes on your coffee mug. So for our next few minutes, I want to kind of work our way through them. We're just going to go one by one. I'm just going to talk about them just for a few minutes. My goal today isn't exhaustive, like to perfectly define or answer all of your questions about the Beatitudes. Uh, My goal today is curiosity, uh, to pique your interests and to allow the Holy Spirit to carve out spaces that he wants to instruct you, or he wants to encourage us, or widen all of our view. Uh, I think that the Beatitudes are something that require space, and time, and meditation, and reflection. The illumination of them is something far slower than we're able to do on a Sunday morning, because I find when I engage them, I have to unlearn as much as I have to learn, and unlearning takes space. So we're just going to spend a few minutes on each. It won't be exhaustive, but uh, okay, so let's jump in. Um, verse 3. Sawyer, if you want to follow along with me, you, uh, you can. Verse 3 um, is the first beatitude that says this. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Um, poor here in the NLT is honestly a bad translation. Um, it, it does say poor and realizing their need for him, but the uh, closer to the original language and what you may, if you grew up in the church, know in your heart is poor in spirit. Or another way of saying it is poor at being spiritual. Uh, Dallas Willard, who wrote an incredible book uh, called The Divine Conspiracy, and the foundation of that book is the Sermon on the Mount. If you're like looking for a fun companion, I don't know if it's a fun companion, but if you're looking for a companion during Lent as you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's a really good one. Um, but uh, he says this. He translates this, uh, this beatitude this way. He says, Blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived, and deficient, The spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion. Uh, For some context, uh, Matthew 5 tells us that it's a crowd of people uh, that Jesus is talking to. And they come from all over Israel and as far away as Syria. And that the people who have shown up in this particular crowd, uh, in Matthew chapter 4, he describes them. And he says they were the sick, the diseased, the possessed, the epileptic, epileptic, and the paralyzed. And Jesus had been healing all of them. That's what Matthew tells us in 4. Jesus healed all of them. All of them. And so this is who he's looking at. He's looking at a crowd of people who showed up because they were literally at the end of their rope, who in a last-ditch effort came um, to a miracle man that they'd heard about in hopes of healing. That's who he's looking at. And he's looking at them, and he's saying uh, not that they're blessed because they're poor or that they're blessed because they're bad at being spiritual. I think what he's doing is he's maybe looking at them and saying, you may have heard that the ways of God are for the spiritually elite, but I'm turning that upside down. The kingdom of God, it is big and it is wide. And the way in has nothing to do with earning or perfection. The way in is to need it. I read a quote a couple of weeks ago from Pope Francis that says this. Uh, he says this. He says, if anyone asks me, Father, what is the shortest way to encounter Jesus? I say, be needy. Be needy for grace needy for forgiveness, be needy for joy, and he will draw near to you. Jesus starts his talk off like this, blessed are the spiritually needed, for the kingdom of God is well suited for you, accessible to you. It is something you can belong to. Next up, verse four. 
God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, Honestly, I think this is, if this is Jesus's like best sermon out, his like rally the troop sermon, I think this is a terrible pitch uh, to rally troops for your kingdom. Normally powerful people gather people together in two ways. Uh, they gather people together because they've conquered them or they gather people together because they promised them something better than what currently exists. A life uh, with less sadness or a, a life that's easier. But Jesus blesses mourning, which kind of feels like he's guaranteeing it, which is not something I want to sign up for. Um, This one is honestly the hardest of all of them for me. I often refer to myself as a reluctant griever. But if you have followed Jesus for any significant period of time or been a human for any significant period of time, then you know that to to follow Jesus's way means to be well acquainted with grief. My friend Seth calls grief solidarity with God. That because God grieves, and he does, then it is a godly thing for us to also learn how to grieve. It is solidarity with God. And I am learning that it is also a merciful thing that God allows us to do. There's this story um, of Jesus uh, where he, one of his closest friends, Lazarus, dies. Some of you have probably heard it maybe dozens or hundreds of times, but uh, Jesus, he, he goes to the tomb, he, he comes a few, Lazarus has died, he comes a few days later, and he knows he's going to bring him back to life, but do you remember what he does before he does that? Anyone? He weeps. He goes to the tomb, and he grieves. He weeps. Have you ever wondered why? Uh, again, my friend Seth, who has become kind of like a sage for me in learning how to grieve, he, he talks about this story often and particularly this point. And, and his theory is that Jesus weeps, that he grieves because it honors reality. He grieves to honor the moment, to honor the world as it actually is, not just how he knows it will be. And so I'm curious if one way to read this beatitude would be, blessed are those who see the world as it is, not just as they want it to be, for in that is solidarity with God. In that is access to the deep comfort of the kingdom of God. Some of you know what I'm talking about. One, because you've learned, maybe through addiction, to see the world as it actually is, not as we would have it be. We have a lot to learn from the addicts in our room. And also, because you know what it is to grieve, and you know that there is no finish line to grief. In some moments of grieving, though, there may not be a finish line, but in some of those moments, there is a harmony with God that simply cannot be found anywhere else. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Okay, next one, verse 5. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Uh, Some translations choose the word meek here for humble, but I like humble better. Uh, Honestly, I think the best word uh, to translate this would be unimportant. Blessed are the unimportant, the overlooked, the unnoticed. Simon and Garfunkel translated it, the spat upon, the sat upon, and the ratted on. It's an upside-down moment, a kingdom accessible not by power or importance or accolade or grasping, but a kingdom accessible to the gentle, to the trusting, to the ones who don't grasp, who don't claw their way to the top. It's the kind of kingdom where the unimportant find great worth and wild inheritance. I wonder if what Jesus is saying is, is, is that the benefactors of his kingdom, his goodness belongs to the people who would never in a million years imagine that it belongs to them. 
Jesus, he, he always has this message that the kingdom of God is available to anyone who wants it. The kingdom, it is accessible and heritable to everyone. It can belong to anyone. Blessed are you who assume that all of this is for everyone but you. Or blessed are you who have been told that all of this is for everyone but you. The kingdom of God has not overlooked you. In fact, it is at your hands. I like want to stay on that one forever, but we'll go on to verse 6. God blesses those who hunger or thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Uh, I think what he's saying here is blessed are those who long for, who ache for, who burn for things to be put back to right. One of the most fun parts of my job is how many of you this describes. That you burn for, long for, ache for things to be put back to right. Uh, It makes me go back to the crowd to think about the crowd that Jesus is talking to. Because like I said, it's a crowd full of people who are at the end of their rope, desperate to be healed, and the people who brought them. And I think this is when Jesus is talking to those people. Blessed are you, he says, for longing so much for the world to be put back to right that you bring your friends. Because there might be a chance at healing. You will be satisfied with my kingdom. You will be satisfied by the way that I run things. Uh, Brian Zond, he says, Blessed are those who ache for the world to be made right. For them, the government of God is a dream come true. Uh, In a core group recently uh, that I'm in, we were talking about the story in Mark 2 where Jesus heals a paralyzed man and and he's talking again. There's a huge crowd, and these, these guys, they bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, and they can't get in the room. And so uh, they go up on the roof, and they tear a hole in the roof, and they lower him down so that this man can be at Jesus' feet. And that night, we spent so much time talking about the friends who longed for things to be put back to right. This beatitude makes me think of them and those Like them, blessed are you who can't stop praying for healing no matter what. Blessed are you who cannot look away when people are mistreated and misunderstood, underserved, neglected, abused. Blessed are you who fall asleep at night or wake up in the morning dreaming about ways to make things right in your family or with your friends or in your neighborhood or in our community beyond. The blessing, Jesus says, that belongs to you is satisfaction. That those who hunger and thirst for things to be made right, Jesus offers himself as the satisfaction for their longing. Because wherever there is need for justice, and wherever there is need for healing, and wherever there is need for mercy, there you can always find Jesus. Always. On that note, God blesses those who are merciful. Verse 7, God blesses those who are merciful. For they will be shown mercy. I think these two uh, go hand in hand. They go together quite well because mercy is the act of compassion. Right before this, Jesus blesses the hunger inside us that longs for things to be made right. But I think right here he blesses not just the hunger but the action on it. I was listening uh, to Tim Mackey, who writes for the Bible Project, talk about this, and he got me curious. Because it seems like in this beatitude uh, that Jesus kind of swoops up, like gathers up all of the ones we've just talked about, all of the ones before it. Like Jesus is saying, blessed are you who see the world as it is, not just how you want it to be. Uh, And instead of numbing yourself to that, you grieve it. And even though you're spiritually needy uh, and you don't think you're very important, you still long for and hunger for the world to be made right. And then you find ways to act on that longing. 
with a family member or a friend or a neighbor or a coworker. You act with compassion. You give mercy. You offer care. Acts of mercy are kind of uh, like the mustard seed or the yeast that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. They're small things that infiltrate a much wider world or a much wider dough. Small, tiny mercies tend to overtake things with greater mercy. Jesus says in his kingdom, mercy is not a zero-sum game. That when it's given, there's plenty more to receive. That mercy begats mercy begats mercy. Verse 8. Next one. God blesses those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Brian Zond, I keep quoting him. I think he's brilliant on the Beatitudes. He says that these are the people who have clean windows in their souls. Uh, Eugene Peterson says that this blessing comes from getting your inside world, your heart and your mind, put to right. Uh, the way we say it around here often is that, uh, that your spiritual life will never outpace your emotional life. And I wonder if this blessing is Jesus blessing the hard work of soul work. If uh, this week I read that the, in the ancient world, having a clean heart or being clean of heart, pure of heart, meant that you had successfully conquered the opposition inside yourself. It meant that inside you was a state of congruence and integration and integrity. Where you are who you are who you are who you are. And with that, it seems like Jesus is saying, blessed are those whose insides match their outsides, who have done the work of decompartmentalizing themselves, who have done the work of, of becoming congruent. Uh, my, my therapist talks often about how we operate a lot like a chest of drawers, and we put things in separate drawers. And she says that, the, the, that this work, that soul work, is becoming one big drawer, not with lots of secret ones, but one big drawer, the work of, of congruence. For with a whole heart, a clean window to your soul, you have a better view of God, not just in you, but all around the world. I feel like we're flying. You may feel like we're dragging, but verse 9. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers. Sometimes I, um, if I'm really honest with you, can, uh, I, I confuse peacemaking with information gathering. Uh, there's this meme that I sent to some of my friends uh, uh, very recently that says this. It says, I'd love to go to sleep, but I simply cannot until I figure out if this girl I knew in fifth grade got divorced or not. That is not what we're talking about here. That is information gathering. <laughs> that is not uh, peacemaking. God loves peace, and he loves right relationships. And reconciliation is of incredible worth and incredible value in the kingdom of God. I think we're talking about those who are so sure that they are at peace with God, uh, that they do the difficult and terribly inconvenient work of placing themselves in between two disagreeing parties in the name of reconciliation. People who are, believe they are so at peace with a God who loves peace, who loves reconciliation, that they're willing to offer themselves in between two people in the name of that. Who aren't just keeping peace. Keeping peace is just trying to keep each side quiet, right? But those who stand in the middle uh, uh, with each side demanding that you pick theirs. Have you ever... Um, I hope you haven't, but if you've ever seen a domestic dispute, I remember watching a police officer trying to handle two people who saw the world two very different ways. This is what we're talking about. And then they both were just mad at the police officer. 
right? This is, this is, this is the work. Uh, blessed are those who work for peace because they will be called God's children. Dallas Willard says that Jesus calls the peacemaker children of God because on earth they get called every other name in the book but that one. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The work of peace is not small work. And finally, verse 10. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those, he says, who are mocked and misunderstood for the right reasons. Because few things drive you deeper into the kingdom of God than that. If you know, you know. I wish I had more time. I would just sit here for a really long time. Uh, because the, the world is bonkers right now. And there are a whole lot of people screaming things in the name of Jesus that I frankly don't think sound like Jesus at all. It's one of the reasons I wanted to spend the next few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. Because I think if, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, this is something we should be intimately acquainted with. Uh, that's why we're going to read the Beatitudes every Sunday to start this service. And I think if you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, I think this is also important for you as well because this is Jesus unpacking his whole plan. This is Jesus saying, here's what I value most. This is Jesus' presentation of the good life. And there's lots of people screaming about what Jesus says. Uh, I think it matters that you know what he said. And I think when the world yells loudly about Jesus, it is vitally important that we hold that yelling up to his words and his life and his kingdom that we find here compiled in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where he declares what it means to be blessed. And these things in this world, they will get you mocked by people who honestly are people who scream his name really, really loud. I'm starting uh, to see this list of beatitudes as clues of like how to uncover God's kingdom in the world. Like when someone says something and they're like, Jesus wants this, or Jesus is going to rule this, or they, they, they invoke the name of Jesus, the, the way that I try to see through all of the bonkers uh, uh, is, is I try to look for what God wants. I find myself asking, uh, in the world that you're talking about, are, are the poor in spirit welcome? Is there comfort for those who mourn? Do you hold up people who are unimportant? Do you, is there a hunger for justice? Is mercy being extended anywhere? Is there a congruence inside and outside in the people who are leading? Does it work for peace? Will it endure persecution? And so when people yell loudly about Jesus or his kingdom, but these things are missing, I think it should give us pause. I think it should feel awful because, because it might not be the way. Okay, I've talked a really long time. We made it through. Um, but here's what I want to do. Um, every week in our service, we, we do something we call Selah, and it's just a breath or a pause. And like I said, I, I, don't, I, I legitimately don't know how to preach a sermon on the Beatitudes because I think they just need space. So we gave it a shot. But what I think matters most is that we create a little bit of space to allow the Holy Spirit uh, to carve out what he wants to do in us, to, to, to look through these things, to reflect on them, and meditate on them, to, to look at them for what they can show us about who God is, and to look at them for what they can show us about what it means to be a person. So we're going to put them back on the screen. We're going to do the message version, which is bananas and wonderful. And so we're just going to take a few minutes on each one, and I'm just going to pray and bless it and ask God to highlight stuff in you uh, that he might want to do in you and through you. So let's pray. Jesus, we sang a few minutes ago that your kingdom is simple. 
that it's backward. We've talked about it being upside down. And so I pray over the next few weeks, will you allow us to unlearn things that we hold to that aren't really part of your kingdom. And I pray that you would uh, allow us uh, a chance to relearn the things that are. I pray that you would um, allow us to unlearn uh, the discipling of our culture and our society that calls blessing a whole lot of things that aren't listed here. And I pray that you would put in us imagination for blessing in the unimportant, the small, the grieving, the peace, the mercy, the persecution. Would you rewire us and retrain us? And I just pray in these next few minutes that you would fill us, um, I don't know, with one of these or some of these, something that uh, you want to do some work in us around.